Okay, I'm glad you're here. Um, we have one of the most fascinating figures in, in ever, really, um, Pinchas. Uh, Pinchas, and we say Pinchas zu Eliyahu. Uh, Pinchas becomes Eliyahu. And um, it's, it's uh, very striking what that means exactly. Meaning to say, like the, well, the, the, the simple words means Pinchas is Eliyahu. So then you say, well, well, but what does that mean exactly? That Pinchas is reincarnated as Eliyahu? That might be the easiest way to understand it because we know we've got reincarnation all over the place. Judaism believes in reincarnation. No problem with that. But I saw from the Morvishemish the idea that one, you, you see, one of the things that we don't really talk about so much in Torah, but it's, it's really worth considering is, is mostly we deal in this paradigm of body and soul. Right? You've got your soul and you've got your body, and in a perfect world, the body and soul really should be best friends. But, they're, but th- th- that's not how they're wired to begin with, right? Because the body has certain needs, and then the soul has a certain level of awareness, and they don't always, they don't always um, see eye to eye. And one of the, one of the great um, acts of Torah is that it gives you a pathway toward making your soul and your body best friends. But it's, a, it's an ongoing process. And it's, you know, like, um, and any real progress has to, I once, was it Rabbi Wine? It may have been Rabbi Wine who really compared it to, if you, if you ever looked at the, um, a, a, uh, a graph uh, on the stock market, like how the NASDAQ is doing, or the Dow, or any particular stock, you'll see it, it's, it's up, it's down, it's up, it's down, it's up, it's down, but, but hopefully it's going up over time, or sometimes it's going down over time. But even if it's going down over time, it's up, it's down, it's up, it's down, and there are these jagged lines. And that's a much more, um, that's a much more realistic understanding of progress, either upward or downward. In other words, anyone who, um, anyone who thinks that, uh, you know, progress is this seamless, this seamless curve upward, or, or you know, disaster is this, this, the, this direct path downward, really isn't correlating that with, with the human condition and the way people really are. So, so even when you're going down, you're still going to have the ups, and even when you're going up, you're still going to have downs. And that's, that's, just, that's just life, right? The Lubavitcher Rebbe said something so great, and I think this is a great, uh, this is, uh, I, I think, a great piece, a great insight into anyone who's looking for a shidduch, um, a, uh, someone to marry, which is that I think that, I think that the, the inclination, and there's a logic to this, but ultimately I think it's false, but the inclination is for a person to really find someone who's holding um, spiritually speaking, or life-wise, where where they themselves are, right? And and there and there's a million reasons why that makes perfect sense, except for the fact that you might be genuinely in the same spot, but you're going up and they're going down, <laughs> and you're just meeting at this time of intersection. So so it's the the the, the better barometer when you. Um, are considering someone as a, a, a life partner is are you guys facing in the same direction? 
And then, even if, say, you're more, you know, spiritually advanced, or she's more spiritually advanced, or whatever it is, if you're heading in the same direction, ultimately you're going to catch up with each other. And just as long as you want, ultimately, the same thing, then that's, that's, that's the important thing. So the Lubavitcher Rebbe says that it's not really a question of what level you're holding on. The question is, are you going up or down, and how quickly? <laughs> Right? Because someone could be up here, someone could be down here, but the person up here is speeding down very fast. Right? So you, you, you don't know. So that's, that's, that's why it's so important to kind of like really talk about, you know, where, what, your, what, your, what your goals are. And um, I was talking with someone this week, and we were talking about, you know, marriage type stuff and everything. And... I think that, see, it's so, it's so, uh, it's, it's so challenging. And, and the only thing that I can compare it to, like life before marriage or life after marriage, is I, I remember my, my wife was due to give birth to our first child like any day. In fact, I think it was already supposed to have happened. And we were at her doctor's office. And... Um, so these doctors also will see like uh, moms right after they've given birth as well. So even though it's mostly for pregnancy and stuff like that, nonetheless you'll see a couple of newborns there in the in the in the office as well. So we were sitting, and you know it's going to happen any day, any minute maybe, and this like this huge canyon that we're about to traverse in terms of our lives, right? Like. What is it like on the other side of, what is it like actually being a parent? What, what's going to happen? You know, we don't know. And then across from us in this sort of like very narrow aisle, there was a mother who was facing us with this like tiny little newborn baby. And so it was like so clear. It's like we're on this side of the aisle and like inches away there, but a universe away, right? Inches away, but a universe away there, there's someone who's gotten through the process. And it's sort of like, well, what's going to be? Like, what, what's going to happen exactly? So, so the thing is, is that the reason why I'm bringing that up in terms of marriage is because a lot of times things that seem like giant concerns before you get married, once you get married, not giant concerns. Other things are giant concerns. And then you realize, well, maybe I was focusing on things that weren't the, the ichor, the essence, beforehand. So another thing that I would compare it to is, like, one of my favorite visuals is crossing a desert. And you've got, you know, in, in, you've got these big sand dunes that look like these mountainous structures. And, but anyone who, you know, I, you know from, from what I've read and things like that, anyone who crosses a desert never navigates according to sand dunes, even though they can be mountainous. Like you would never say, you see that giant mountain over there? Like, like go to that, and then when you hit that, take a right, and then you see that one in the distance, and you go to that one. Why? Because at night, the winds blow, and the entire landscape changes. So, so you can't, can't do it that way. And so, again, there's this sense that a lot of times, and everyone does this, this is not a, it's not a flaw. This is just, I'm just trying to give us all insight into, into the, how challenging the process can be. Um, 
that, that things that might seem hyper-important before you're married are not those things that you're supposed to be navigating by. Okay? So then what do you navigate by? What do you navigate by, right? So one of the things that I kind of, like, came to me one time was that some people either consciously or unconsciously, and I know this is people even kind of like have this in the back of their mind uh, sometimes, which is, you know, they look across the table at the person they're, they're on a date with and they wonder, uh, like, if I were stuck on a desert island with this person, like, would, would that be, would, would I be happy with that, right? Would that be a good thing? And then, then that might be a, a good criteria since I'm going to be theoretically married to this person my whole life. So the thing is, is that that's totally wrong because after you get married, you still have your friends, you still have your family, you still have your work. He, she still has their friends, still has their family, still has their work. You don't see each other that much during the day. You don't. It's, it's a few hours. So, so you know, I don't want to belittle it, but I, I, I do want to be realistic about it. Just to give us the, the right questions to be asking ourselves and the right, the right focus to, to, be, to be thinking about. So, so, so uh, my, my wife gives this advice that I, 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 she counsels people sometimes on the phone and I've just heard her say this while I've been sitting in the chair. I've just heard her end of the conversation. But there's always, whenever she says this, I always sort of nod my head and think, yeah, that makes a lot of sense, you know, which is that, which is she'll, she'll talk to someone who's been on a first date and, and the person will say, uh, she'll say, well, what'd you think? And the person will say, well, person's not for me. It's like, okay, well, um, did you have a good time with them? Like, did you enjoy the discussion, everything like that? Yes. All right, well, then see them again. And so then they'll go out again. No, this is definitely, this, the person is not for me. Did you enjoy spending time with them? It was a good conversation? Yeah. All right, so see them again. And several of these people have ended up getting married. <laughs> no way. Because that is, you see, the problem is, is that a lot of times, and this is going to sound funny, but I'm telling you it's true, a lot of times the more spiritual you are, the harder it is to find someone to marry. Because you're thinking, you're thinking of all these sort of like mystical things and Kabbalistic things and everything like that, where I'm just telling you, the main thing is, do you enjoy your conversation with them? Like, I'm telling you, and, and I, I know the story to be true because I know the person. I, 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 I witnessed this. He had, he had a long-standing girlfriend who was born on the exact same day as he was. They had the exact same birthday, same date, same year. And then, you ready for this? They have a child born on the exact same day. Can you imagine? They're divorced now. And I'm telling you this story because of the ending. <laughs> the point is, is that all the samanim, all the signs, like, didn't mean anything. Because if there's like, you know, like the baby's screaming and dinner's not on the table and money was supposed to come in and it hasn't come in yet and this bill is due and everything's going crazy, you're not both going to say, Dalit Cheshvin. We were both born Dalit Cheshvin. Like, that's... <laughs> That's going to get us through this moment right now. That is not going to get you through that moment right now. It's going to get you through that moment is the fact that you 
enjoy spending time with each other and that you're committed to each other and it's tense right now. There might even be a crisis right now, but we're going to get through this. But that's where you see that these signs and wonders like ultimately are not what's going to keep a person together. They might draw two people together, but it's not what's going to keep a person together, a couple together. That's, that's what you're looking for. Okay? So, so, so that's, so a, a question to ask, a question to ask when you're sort of like, you see, one of the, so you say, okay, we're not going to spend, this guy, who seems to be, I'm listening to for some reason or another, <laughs> this guy seems to say we're only spending a few hours together. <laughs> so, but you know what? Hours, those are really like the crucial hours or a lot of the crucial hours. Shabbos and Yentif. Right? That's, that's a lot of the crucial time. So here's a great question to ask while you're dating. Right? Hey, what was Shabbos like for you growing up? Or what kind of Shabbos do you, do you enjoy? Right? Or what kind of Shabbos would you like to have? Going forward, like, what do you imagine in your home? Like, or yuntif, like, growing up, what was your favorite yuntif? Like, and, and by the way, make sure if you're going to ask a question like that, that you give your own answer first. Right? You know what, you know what I love? I love porn, you know? And then you can explain why. But I, the reason why I'm saying that is that so that the other person doesn't feel like, Oh, this is a test. What is my if I say Pesach, <laughs> but if I don't say Yom Kippur, you know, you don't want to, you want to make them feel like they're 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 being cross-examined. That's why you should offer a story first so that you relax the other person. They understand there's no right or wrong answer. But at the same time, you're going to get a sense from questions like that, which are really going to give you an accurate sense or a more accurate sense of what l real, actual life together is going to be. And you say, oh, you know, for instance, did you have guests growing up? It, was that, or, or do, is that something that you'd like? Guests and things like that. You know, so, so these are all things that will influence the type of uh, real quality time that, that, that is like, sort of like ground zero time, you know, in the, in the best sense of that phrase. I don't know if there is a good sense of that phrase anymore, but but you know, just the, 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 the real the real time together. And and um, can also open up conversation and, and sharing and maybe hopefully um, allow you guys to connect. Okay. So meanwhile, we're talking about we're talking about body and soul. And I think also, you know, you know, all, all these mystical teachings um, which are so beautiful and so true and real at the same time, but at the same time, you, it's hard to lead with them. Um, you know, again, in terms of the mystery of choosing a, a spouse, you know. So like, for instance, l let me give you an example. There's, we know that one of the last vestiges of prophecy in the world is what you name a child. Like you, what you would ever name a child, that, that's their name, right? You're, you're reading their soul. Like, that's what it is. So, um, so I said to, uh, or someone said to me rather, um, they were about to name their, their baby. It was, you know, you know, a few days before the naming, I guess. And they said, I'm so scared. I'm going to give the baby the wrong name. And I said, listen, you don't have to be scared you're going to give the baby the wrong name. Because whatever you name it, whatever you name it, in retrospect, that was the name. Mm -hmm. You understand how it works? Like, 
So, so it's the same thing in, in a deep way with choosing a partner. If you are doing it in a menschlich way, whoever you choose, in retrospect, that was your b'sherit. Right? And of course we have the zivig rishon, zivig sheni, right? You know, hopefully we don't have to get to that, but if we do, that's, even then, you, you, it was still your b'sherit. It's not any less your b'sherit if you don't stay married to them. It was your b'sherit. At that point in your life, okay, so now you have a new b'sherit. Uh, that's fine. But in other words, what I'm trying to say is, ultimately, if you're asking the right questions and you're coming from a place of love and good intention, there is no wrong choosing. But then you just, then it's on you to make it work. Right? Then each, each person, each person has to take 100% responsibility for the success, for the success of the relationship. And, and that's, that's, really, that's really the key right there. Because if each person is waiting for the other to do the right thing and waiting for the other to come through, it's already, it's already off. It's, it's already, the, the relationship has already gone off the skits. You have to be doing it. But you have to marry someone who you believe going into the relationship is 100% committed to doing the same thing. Right? So, okay, it's not easy. It's not easy. But, but there's what I'm what I'm what I'm trying to get across here. Hopefully, I'm getting this across. Is is the the, the the practical reality of marriage. That that and 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 getting back to this idea that a lot of times before we're married, before we've sort of crossed that 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 you know dimension wide canyon, that we're concentrating on, is this the other part of my soul as opposed to after I'm exhausted and the person asks me to go to the market can I go to the market? In other words, it, it really becomes much more of a practical exercise than a mystical exercise. And But before you encounter it, it's oftentimes this mystical exercise, and that's what trips people up, because we're not prophets. So how do we know? We don't know. So it's endlessly confounding and endlessly mysterious. So, but if we're asking the right questions, I think that we can get to the end result much more successfully and much, much faster. So that's, that's, that's that. So, so we have the soul, and we have the body. And, and the soul knows certain things, right? But the body plays a very big role in, in Torah. And you see, you see, the idea is ultimately we want to spiritualize the body. And that's, like I say, a, I think a real under-discussed topic in Torah. Usually we're just kind of thinking of the body as a glove. That's sort of like, you know, the life force within the glove is manipulating the fingers and that's the soul. But the body itself can become holy. And that's interesting. That's interesting. And we know that the, you know, we talk about Mashiach a lot, because we know that the world itself is evolving toward perfection. 
And we, we think of the, the word Mashiach as that buzzword for the, 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 the era where everything sort of changes over and perfection enters into the world, right? But people sort of overlap their, short, their, short, their shorthand phrases. That era is not so much the Messianic era. That era is the era after that, which is called Techias Amesim, which is the mass resurrection of the dead. And this is one of the core principles of Torah. Absolutely, 100% essential, essential element of belief, essential element of belief. And it's, you know, I remember I, I was once uh, at, a, at a shul, like a kola, and there was a there was someone who kind of was, you know, trying to make a parnasa. He was kind of walking around the different people in the shul. He was showing some photographs that he was taking. And they were pictures of, of, of old Jewish graves, right? Like one was, of I remember, of the, the kever, the, the gravesite of the Berdichever Rebbe, and things like that. And, and I remember looking at that, and it was, you know, it's just kind of, there's kind of grass around, but it's, it's a grave. It's like a tombstone, you know? And he's got a bunch of them. And there was a little boy who was like six years old. And he like walks over and he wants to see the pictures. And you know, we're looking at them together. And I said to him, do you, do you, do you think those are beautiful? Right? Because you could think like, like one of the jokes my wife makes all the time, which is that, yeah, we're going on vacation. We're going, um, we're, we're going to be going grave hopping. <laughs> you know, like. For Jews, like that's like a real vacation, you know? We're gonna go we're gonna go to this Sadik's grave and then we're gonna go to that Sadik's grave. Like and then you, you don't really think about how in the greater context of maybe secular society how that might seem like a very bizarre vacation, you know what I mean? But like we we understand that the Sadikim are alive, okay, not in a body, but they're alive even after they're gone from this world, and that these are great sort of like portals between this world and the next, and great, you know, great places to pray, and then, you know, you go, you go to the grave, you, yeah, then you, you get some lunch, go for a swim, go <laughs> back in the car, into the next <laughs> grave. So, and anyone, those who know, understand I'm not making this up, this is a real thing. So, anyway, so I said, I said to, uh, I said to this little boy, he's like six years old, I, about these pictures, I said, do you, do you think these pictures are beautiful? And he says, yeah. And I said, I do too. And I said, you know why? Because, because we know the guy is going to come out of that thing. <laughs> so, so, so we had this next era in terms of, I'll give you a fancy word, fancy word it's called eschatology. So eschatology, and all religions have it, by the way, is their end-of-days scenario. right? And by the way, if you really want to kind of drill down into understanding <coughs> another, another religion, like most people won't tell you what their eschatology is, because that's when it gets hairy, right? <laughs> Like, that's when the Catholics are like, yep, and then all you Jews are going to burn forever? What? You left out that part? Yeah, well, you didn't, you didn't ask. <laughs> so, so anyway, and like, you know, get, 
to the Muslim eschatology. The Muslim eschatology is, is fascinating. You know, like you really like, like it's kind of like auditing some a religion's tax returns. Like, like it's like okay, sit down, brother. What do you say happens in the end of days, right? So, so anyway. By the way, let me just throw in what I think is the best PR in the world to do for for Judaism is that we believe that the righteous of all nations have a place in heaven. Amen. You know, and that's something to be extraordinarily proud of and is not a, a truth across the board in world religion at all, at all. So you can see kind of the, 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 the truth of Judaism in that, by the way. But anyway, this next stage, which is this, the mass resurrection of the dead, is, um, is a stage where the, the, you see, actually there's, there's a bit of a couple of different opinions about it. Like, what is that stage exactly? So, actually I'll throw this in because I, I love this, from the Berditch of a Rebbe. See, remember, there's thir- 613 mitzvahs, and your body has 613 different parts, okay? So each, um, each part of your body is connected to a different mitzvah, okay? And again, here you see this correlation between spiritualizing the, your, your, your body as well, you know, your flesh as well. Um, so in your various incarnations, because people ask this, like, I think a very great question, which is, okay, if we believe in incarnation, reincarnation, which one of me gets resurrected at the end of days, right? So the Berdichever Rebbe answers this question. He says that you probably excelled, or you did excel in certain mitzvahs during different lifetimes, and your body at the end is essentially going, he doesn't use this phrase, but it's going to be a greatest hits version of you, <laughs> right? So that's, because, and, and if you think about it, there's, there's actually a, a real, like, very clear Torah logic to that opinion. Because we say that we are reincarnated in order to finish certain mitzvahs that we haven't done in the past. So it does make perfect sense that there are certain lifetimes where we excel in certain things, right? There's a, it makes perfect sense, and you know. So, so, so in one version, that post-techiasamesin, post-resurrection of the dead era, is going to be purely spiritual. Purely spiritual. The next is going to be, no, it's going to be physical, but our bodies and our souls are going to be equally pure. So, so the, in other words, the physical realm will have reached this sort of like divine equilibrium, right? That's just humming along and doesn't get messed up. It's just great. And then there's a third opinion, which is fascinating, which is that no, we'll come up in a body, but then over time, we'll reach this point where the body becomes so spiritualized, it becomes just pure soul as well. And the entire, this entire dimension becomes completely spiritual. So these are all different things. But again, you see that the role of the body, ultimately, is to be infused with spirituality. Now, let's bring it back to Pinchas. Because believe it or not, we've been discussing Pinchas the whole time. So... So what is this idea, Pinchas Zu Eliyahu? So according to the Moor Vishemesh, Pinchas 
through his great sitkas, through his great righteousness, and uh, just beyond holiness, was actually during his lifetime, during his lifetime, that's the key phrase, able to transform himself into this, he was able to elevate his flesh so that, so that he was like holding basically at this level and, and was able to become Eliyahu not in a reincarnation type scenario, but in a continuum that Pinchas became Eliyahu. So that's a very that's a very interesting it's a very interesting uh, idea, you know. But 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 in terms of the take home for all of us is that you know we should realize that we should appreciate our bodies basically. We should appreciate our bodies and that our bodies aren't this sort of like inconvenience, sort of mucking up the soul. But that, that, that our bodies are basically part of this divine process of elevating the entire world. And that's why th- mitzvahs that have sort of like a physical basis, like tefillin or um, going to the mikvah or um, eating kosher, things like this, that all these things that are sort of like more... Um, physically oriented mitzvahs are like very important mitzvahs because this is part of the ultimate game plan in terms of raising ourselves up. Okay. So so there's a a bunch in this Parsha and I just want to sort of like take five steps back right now and just share a, a just an overall thought because because uh, Sefer Bamidbar, um, also known as the Book of Numbers, is 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 a it's it's a fascinating chronicle of downfalls, right? We've got one after the other. We've got Miriam is speaking Lush and Hara about Moshe, right? What get Saras Miriam? What? Um, the spies, the leaders of the Jewish people, the heads of the tribes, are somehow end up sabotaging our kind of our express route into the land of Israel with Moshe leading the Jewish people? What? And the Torah itself is calling them like tzaddikim? What? Then you've got Korach. Korach, who's like like the, one of the greatest people in all of Israel, all of a sudden ends up leading this revolution, this like little mini civil war against Moshe Rabbeinu? Like, are you kidding me? And then you've got, then you've got like somehow... Like one of the heads of the tribes, like Zimri, like in front of all of Israel, is going off with 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 one of the Midianite women, and the, and a plague breaks out, and then you've got Pinchas, who's like you know saving the day, but like under very extreme circumstances. So 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 never n- not in the entirety of the Torah do you have all of these like epic individual scenarios that all, you know, except for Pinchas, I guess, but that's the, the, the greater context is negative where he arrives on the scene. So, so with this in mind, we can understand why Reb Shlomo Karlovach calls Sefer Bamidbar the book of mistakes, right? Because it's a big chronicle of, of mistakes. But very fascinatingly, you also see that that there are all these censuses, 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 whatever. Maybe that's why it's called the Book of Numbers, by the way. 
because because there's the repeated census taking place and where where we're being counted. And in fact, the book itself, Sefer Bamidbar itself, begins with a census. And so, so it seems to me the following. Remember, this is the book of mistakes. It seems to me the following. What about all of us? So what happens to us? How do we think of ourselves after we make a mistake? So the book of Bamidbar, the book of mistakes, begins with us being counted. In other words, God is telling us, God wants us to know, after we make a mistake, you have to know that you still count. Right? That's, that's, the, that's the first thing you need to know. Right? And I'll tell you, I know this from my own life, where when things have gotten difficult, I just say, just keep going, just keep going, just keep going. Because there's so many opportunities where you go, I need more time, I gotta check out, I need more time, I gotta check out. And then you know that little five minutes of checking out turns into five weeks, which turns into five years. <laughs> and it's like you can just avoid that whole thing by just pushing yourself in the moment and just you know, I, I don't know if it's Woody Allen or whatever it is, and I'm, I'm I know I'm misquoting it, but he says something like 90% of life is just showing up, <laughs> you know, something like that. But there's there's a real wisdom in that. In other words, in other words, you just you just show up, you just show up. And you know, I remember there was a meeting, and it was for this job that I was like really excited about. And before the meeting, I didn't read the script. And as I'm getting out of my car, walking to the office, I realized we're meeting on this thing and I didn't read the script. And I had like a minor moment of panic and I thought, maybe I should just get back in my car, call my agent, tell them just to cancel the meeting or whatever it was. And I didn't, I, I went into the, I took the meeting and I told them five reasons why, why I think this is like a great project for me and everything like that. And then I remember he says, um, well, did you read the script? I mean, not, not as a test, but like he wanted now to discuss it in detail, right? So that was just, he didn't, he knew I read the script. Of course I read the script, right? So he wasn't testing me, did you read the script? That's just how people talk, you know what I mean? Like before getting into a discussion about the script. And he said, did you read the script? And there was this moment where I froze and I went, no. And then he said to me, then how do you know that it's such a great project? And I said, oh, because it's about this and these people are involved and I love all their work and I love this thing and da 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 and, and this, this moment. And the reason why I'm telling you this story is because that turned into be the longest, most successful job I've ever had in my entire career. Right? And I almost, I almost didn't even allow myself to keep walking toward the building. <coughs> and, and so just keep going. <laughs> just keep going. Amen. Just keep going. And, and, and you make a mistake, welcome to the club. Welcome to the club. You know, there is, Shlomo Amelech says there is no person alive who hasn't made mistakes. 
It doesn't exist. It doesn't exist. So, you know, I, we've talked about this before, but I think it's an important point. We tend to mythologize great people. And there, on one level, it's very appropriate to do. It's a good thing to do on, on, on some level, because we have to understand that there are great, huge quantum jumps in our spirituality and in our lives that we can be making if we try harder like these people did. At the same time, though, if you mythologize them to the point where a voice says to, to you, oh, I don't have to work hard because I'm not them. They're them, I'm me. Then all of a sudden, that, that, that very having awe over them turns into a negative because now no longer is it motivating you. And it's coming from an unrealistic view of who they are and what they've gone through. Because if you look at every great person in Tanakh, their lives could be described, you know, if you're in a bad, cranky mood, as fairly grim. I mean, you can say, David Melch, you mean the one whose son hunted him to kill him? That David Melch? You know, Avraham Avinu, oh, you mean whose God spoke to him and promised all these things, and then his wife was kidnapped and he was plunged into a famine? That Avraham? Oh, Yitzchak? Oh, Yitzchak, you mean the one who got tied to the altar and went blind and was about to be killed by his dad? That Yitzchak? Right? But no one describes any of those people in the way that I just described them. But in other words, the definition of greatness in the Jewish context is not, wow, I made it through life without any challenges. And this in our, really in our coddled, western, spoiled, pathetic sense of comfort, we think that not being challenged is the ultimate mark of success. And this is fantasy. It's fantasy. The sign of greatness consistently is what do you do in the face of challenge? How do you respond in the face of challenge? That is the mark of success. That is the mark of greatness. And you see that the essential element of that is challenge. So, so we have we have another aspect of Parsha's Pinchas, which is which is the challenge that um, that Slavchad's daughters face. And Slavchad's daughters are like these it's like this amazingly righteous group of women all daughters of this man Slavkad, who is a bit of a mysterious figure. We just know that he died and he didn't have any sons. And the, the daughters say, well, wait a second, like, what about us? Like, the law of inheritance, and I want to walk you through the law of inheritance, because this is like this wonderful Torah math puzzle. Okay? So if you just like, if you just track this, if you want something to do while you're walking down the street or driving in your car, Come up with scenarios and run these through your head and it will just it will delight your mind and your soul. 
it will do, and you'll feel smart because it's not hard math. But every time you do it, it's like your soul like lights up a little bit. Like, I did it. I did it. That's what I got it. Yeah, there it is. Okay, so here it is. You ready for this? You have these... You, right now, we're getting down to the end of the 40 years of wandering in the desert. We're about to enter into Israel. We got, okay, who's going to get which piece of land? Okay, it's, it's getting real now, right? Now, remember, one of the great things, and this was made famous, and whether she knew it or not, I don't know, but it's just like a great little overlap in Harry Potter. Like, the, the, you have the talking hat, which tells them which house, and each of the houses have different um, personalities, Right? The, the, the talking hat like directs them to which is their appropriate place to go. So, so the Medrash says, because it says that you are going to go to, your, each tribe is going to get this piece of land, Al-Pigoral, by, according to the mouth of the lottery. So, so the Medrash says that the, that, the lottery, that the lottery stick actually spoke and announced which piece of land that each, each tribe got. Okay? So, so the problem is, is that Normally speaking, the, the, the Torah up until now has only explained, you know, the eldest son gets this and the, the, the younger son gets that. But what about a situation where you only have daughters? Maybe none of them get anything. That's a possibility. Maybe it's just going to go to the father's brother, right? Because that would be the next closest male. Or maybe to the father's father or something like that. Who, who says that the woman has to get anything? But here you see how, you know, totally, you know, just and righteous and, you know, probably compared to other um, cultures at that time, advanced the Torah is. Of course the women are, are going to get a, an inheritance. A thousand percent, right? But that Torah law, which was always going to be revealed, hadn't been revealed yet. And so this is like Pesach Sheni, where um, the desire of those below arouse and bring down something from above. And so an entire halacha sort of gets channeled through the daughters of Slavchad, which is an, you know, a further you know, amazing example of their righteousness. Okay. And by the way, you know, we, we're always talking about small letters in the Torah and large letters of the Torah. You see the large final letter nun by the daughters of Slavchad. And the large letter Nun, Nun is 50, and they say that this stands for the 50 gates of wisdom, the Chamishim Shari Bina, and that, you know, Bina is associated with women, that they were really, like, on this level of, like, this super high level, right? So, anyway, let's, um, let's get back to this, um, this, this math, how it, how it was done. So they say that this was the most unique act of inheritance in all the world where the dead inherited from the living. Did you hear that? The dead inherited from the living. Now, wait a second. That doesn't make any sense. The whole idea, that's going backwards. The whole idea of inheritance is it's supposed to go forward. The living are supposed to inherit from the dead. What are you talking about? The dead inherited from the living. Okay, so what happened, everybody knows, that the generation that came out of Egypt didn't go into the land of Israel. But the generation that left Egypt had a share in the land. So how are they getting their share of the land if they didn't enter into the land? And then if they are the initial inheritors, 
then how do you divide up their shares among the living if they didn't get it and the living are getting it? So it gets very, very complicated. So you ready for how it goes? Okay. So I'll say it a couple of times because you might not get it the first time. There are a few steps, but like I say, they're simple steps, you just have to remember them, okay? We'll do it a couple of times. All right. So let's say you have two brothers. Let's say Shimon and Levi, okay? Shimon has two sons. Levi has four sons, okay? So you've got two brothers, Shimon and Levi, and they're the ones who are part of the generation that left Egypt, and they die. So Shimon and Levi die. Shimon has two sons. Levi has four sons. So you take the two and the four, you add them up together, and that's six. So that's six shares in the land. Now here comes the cool step. Now the dead inherit from the living. <laughs> you take those six shares in the land, right? Because Shimon has two sons, Levi has four sons, that's six, right? And then you bring it back to Shimon and Levi, and they split it. <laughs> now Shimon has three shares, because there were six total shares, there were six children, right? So now Shimon has three shares, and Levi has three shares. Now watch this next step. This is the final step. The two sons of Shimon split the three shares, and the four sons of Levi split those three shares. And that's how they did it. So we'll do it one more time, okay? We'll do it with different numbers now. Let's do... Um, Shimon and Levi's good friends, also named Shimon and Levi. <laughs> Shimon has four sons. Levi has six sons. All right? So step one, we add those together. That's ten shares. Then the dead have to in inherit from the living. So those ten shares are divided by two. So now Shimon has five shares, Levi has five shares. The four sons of Shimon are going to divide up those five shares, and the six sons of Levi are going to divide up those five shares. And then that's how we did it. It's cool, right? Like, where have you ever heard anything like that before? Like, that's just so cool. So I, I'm telling you, if you can remember those steps, it will be good for your mind and your soul just to say, well, what about three and seven? Well, if you do odd numbers, it gets a little hairy. <laughs> no, that's, that actually is even... No, no, okay, anyway. You, you take it from there. Um, okay, so now I'm going to tell you one more thing, and we'll wrap it up. Tell you something super cool about the letter Vav. All right, so Vav is... Um, Vav is all about connection, right? Vav is actually, um, not only is it a letter in the Torah, but it, it means, actually the word Vav, spelled Vav Vav, by the way, the word Vav actually means a hook. And when they were talking about the Mishkan, the tabernacle, you know, there were certain, every, every little piece was, was divinely ordained and was all part of this structure. Remember the Mishkan, the tabernacle, was a microcosm of the entire universe. So every single piece, even if they're small pieces, right, were like very important. And the, the, the vav, the hooks, were, were, were part of that structure, okay? But what does a hook do? A hook 
connects two things. And avav, grammatically speaking, avav um, is the word and or or, which is something that relates to each other, can tie two things together. And then just to just for extra credit, although this is getting like a little bit more way out, you've also got in Torah this unique grammatical construct that, as far as I know, no other language in the entire world has, which is called the reversing vav. So what the reversing does, do, reversing vav does, is if it's in the beginning of a verb, it makes the past tense into future tense, or the future tense into past tense. So the vav is also like a bit of a time machine, <laughs> where it can connect the past to the future, the future to the past. And and by the way, I had a um, I had a thought on that, which is that we know that the Torah is forever; it's this eternal document. And the fact that it's describing historical events, I mean, you're like there are people who, you know, they're sincerely motivated, but they're not thinking so deeply. So they'll say, well, the Torah is forever. Where, where do you see computers or air travel or interstellar? Where's that? You know, that's okay. That's fine. That's that the, the actual narrative of the Torah is this superficial overlay. That's, that's like, that's the outside of the outside of it. But the inside of the Torah is this dynamic construct, which is eternal and is absolutely true at all times forever. So God found in his divine wisdom a grammatical concept concept to make the future past and the past past future to show the eternality of the Torah itself right so 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 let's get back to this vav so the Mor of Hashemish says in the name of the Zohar that Slavchad's father it says he died in his sin right that's what they say about their father he died in his sin he didn't make it to Israel so so the Zohar comments that he sinned with the letter Vav because basically he didn't make it into the land and like the land is this place of connecting. Right? That's but but it but he goes on further to talk about the letter Vav. And 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 he says something that surprised me. Because if you if you asked me like what is the ultimate letter Vav? Right? Like I would have I would say that it would be the vav of the yudke vavke because if you think again whenever we talk about the yudke vavke it always helps to go from top to bottom because we're talking about the upper realms all the way down to this realm so you have the upper yud and then hay below that and then vav which is basically connecting the heavens down to the lower hay which stands for this dimension okay so that's what I would that's what I would say was would be like the ultimate vav right so he says, and I don't know that he uses the language the great vav or anything like that, but, but he says, you know, the vav, you know, the one that was the central pole that held up the mishkan. So there was one central beam, basically, that held up the entire mishkan. In other words, and he says, basically, that's the key vav. Because a long beam, that's like a straight line, that's the letter Vav. And what's it doing? It's keeping everything in place. In other words, that Vav is, key, is, is the, the agent of connection. Right? So I thought, wow. Okay, so, so there's two dimensions to the letter Vav now. So, so let's just 
hold on to this thought for a moment, and we'll get back to it in a second. So let me give you a kavana to have while you make motzi at the Shabbos table. So, so everybody knows that a person's Shabbos table is compared to um, the shulchan in the Beis HaMikdash, in the Holy Temple, the table in the Holy Temple. And everybody knows that parnosa, livelihood, right, cash, basically flowed into the world through the Beis HaMikdash to the, temp- to the table, to the table where the showbread was, and then went out to the world. And your own Shabbos table, your own table is compared to that table in the Beis HaMikdash. So, so I've often thought when I've held up the challah, because challah is like shaped like a vav, it's like long and flat, like a vav, right? That, so to speak, here's my Shabbos table, here's my shulchan, and here's like the vav, which is like connecting the divine flow from above down to below, right? So then, so that's like something to just sort of meditate on as you're saying, you know, hamotzilech minarts. By the way, you want to hear something super cool. Um, if you want to have a nice set of kavanas, here's two kavanas for when you wash your hands for bread, for motze, right? So Reb Shlomo says that what are you doing when you're washing your hands? Listen to this. This is fantastic. He says, you're washing your hands of the notion that the bread that you're about to eat came from the work of your hands. <laughs> right? You're washing your hands from the notion that the bread you're about to eat came from the work of your hands. Now, combine that with this one, because what brocha do we make? Rav Wilson, Shlita says, Nitilat Yadayim, which means the raising of the hands, Nitilat Yadayim is Gematria Lechem Min Hashemayim, bread from heaven. Right? Because the bread that you're about to receive is coming from beyond. Right? So, so, so I was thinking, I was explaining it to someone that, so here's like, so you have your challah, and that's your vav, and everything that I just shared with you. And then the person said back to me, yeah, but you have two challahs. And then I was like, oh, hmm. But then I realized, wait, vav is spelled vav vav. <laughs> and then I was so happy. <laughs> And now we'll put it all together with the Mor Vashemesh. Because there really are two Vavs. There really are two aspects of the Vav. There is the Vav of the Yudke Vavke, which is bringing down the conduit, so to speak, which is bringing down Shefa, blessing from above to below. But, listen to what the Mor Vashemesh is saying. In order to be able to receive that blessing, like the central pole of the Mishkan, all of us have to be connected. In other words, there has to be unity in order to create that vessel. That's the vav which is making connections in order to create a vessel in order to hold the blessing that's coming down from above. So it's so appropriate and so beautiful that you're holding up two chalas. You've got the two vavs, basically. The one drawing down the bracha and the other one which is symbolizing the, the unity together which is, allows you to hold the flow. Okay. Everyone should have a great week. Amen. Now for some questions and answers. You mentioned the, 
something about blindness with uh, Yitzhak. Uh, I wanted to hear about it. I haven't heard about that, so I'd like to be curious about that. Yeah. But then also, another part of this question, yeah. what's the Kabbalistic connection between blindness and actually being able to truly see? I feel like there's got to be yeah. a connection there. So I'll tell you one thing. When, and you see a beautiful thing about Torah. Blindness in Torah is called saginar, which means someone who's flooded with light. Wow. Because the Torah doesn't like to say bad things. Wow. right? Especially if someone has this condition. right? So they don't, there is no term blindness in, in, in Hebrew it's, or in Torah. It's flooded with light. And what we say is that you see, by, um, by the end of Yitzchak's life, you see in the Torah itself, he doesn't know the difference between Esav and Yaakov. Why? It says because he was flooded with light, basically, at that point in his life, right? That's why he's feeling Yaakov's arm, and they put that sort of animal skin there because it's hairy like Esav. So you know that he was in this, in this place. So the Medrash says that when... This is wild, actually. That the Medrash says that when Avraham Avinu tied him to the to the altar, right, that the angels were crying and that the angels' tears fell into Yitzchak's eyes and they flooded them with light. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. So, yeah. Was he flooded with light from that point on? Yes. 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 Yeah. Yep. 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 You mentioned about that had like reversible time. Yeah. Sure. So. um, I'm curious, one, how is that practically used, and does that mean more of like, this is kind of a tricky question, but is above actually like a vortex disorder, so to speak? Because the Mishkan was, in some ways, it was this place in which Hashem rested, meaning there was this everlasting, infinite aspect to it, that we held this place, and even when it was moved from different places, they say it was so heavy, but really, the Mishkan was carrying everybody else who was holding it. Um, and also, what does that mean about um, Chala in general? Because, as you were saying, like, the Chalas represent Bav, and if you think about Lacha Mishnah, the breads and the base of Mikdash, there's actually 12 of them, and 12 is the mantra of how you spell Bav. Nice, so, yeah. So yeah, I'm that's curious, right. like, what that right. whole situation is. Right. Um, so that was a few questions, so let me just react to it. So... So, one of the things that I think is really, you see, connecting a person to challah, right? You know, see if I can find this quickly, where it's talking about the, the, um, the creation of human beings. It says that, uh, or, or the first person, um, uh, Adam, that, that God basically formed the formed the earth. That's why we're called Adam, because it comes from the word Adama, which means earth. And, and, and so, but the, 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 the last letters of that phrase spell Chala. So it's almost like God was needing Chala. So there you see a very central connection, talking about the first formation of a human being is connected to, to Chala, you know. Um, and so, so we are like Chala on one level because that's, we were kind of kneaded like dough by God, but at the same time, like Chala is a Vav, right? We are also like Vavs, because we're connections between heaven and earth, human beings. And one of the very cool things is that Hasidic Rebbe's 
um, get the sixth aliyah. And I've also often thought of like, why does the tzaddik get the sixth aliyah? Because the sixth aliyah is the vav, and really, you know, they're the most spiritually advanced, you know, members of our community. And so they are, so to speak, the vav, the, the connection between above and below, you know, in the most tangible way. You know, all of us are vavs. We all have that connection. And if you just look at the actual stature of a person standing up, you are in the shape of a vav. You know, so, but but in this way, we 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 all of us are these portals between above and below. You know, and and um, it says that in that that in the time of the holy temple, the Beis Hamikdash, all the shef, all the blessings of the world would go to the Beis Hamikdash and then spread out to the world. So they say, well, how does it come down now when there is no Beis Hamikdash? And it says, well, it flows through the righteous ones of the world, and so it comes through. Through, through all those people. So that vav is, is a very real thing and perhaps even more real at a time when there isn't a temple in terms of its relevance to each and every one of us.